You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Why are you here? Why are you here? I don't mean why are you here in this room at this time this morning. Thank you for being here. I mean to ask you, why are you alive? What is your purpose? How do you know that that purpose is what is supposed to be your purpose? When asked this question about how life should be lived and what is the purpose of life and any variation of such a question, you get countless answers from countless sources. One famous historic writer, Ralph Waldo Emerson, said, the purpose of life is not to be happy, it is to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate, to have made to have it make some difference that you have lived and lived well. One Hindu spiritual master, quote-unquote, Amit Ray said, it does not matter how long you are spending on the earth, how much money you have gathered, or how much attention you have received. It is the amount of positive vibration you have radiated in life that matters. Modern day vernacular, good vibes only. One self-styled life coach, Steve Maraboli, said, you were put on this earth to achieve your greatest self, to live out your purpose, and to do it courageously. But that begs the question, well, what is my greatest self? What is my purpose? Well, this is usually where a number of people have a life coach be inserted into their life. Some of you who come from various backgrounds don't have a clue what I'm talking about, so let me just explain to you briefly so that we can all be on the same page of understanding. There has risen in the last over a decade a new industry of counsel, of occupation titled life coach. I don't mean to refer to it in any sort of disparaging way. I just simply mean to explain what it is and why it is. The International Coaching Federation says, coaching is partnering with clients in a thought-provoking and creative process that inspires them to maximize their personal and professional potential. This is not some niche hobby. This is not some type of unknown industry, this is to the tune of $2.85 billion a year industry. There are over 77,000 life coaches, life coaches around the country, excuse me, around the world. There's over 25,000 just around our own country. The average life coach session comes alongside you for the appointed session to the tune of about $244 a session up to maybe $1,000 a session if you're maybe a CEO of a company and the company's paying for it, and it gives you counsel and direction and clarification as to your purpose and how to accomplish that in a meaningful way. 
For some people, this is just simply a matter of providing clarity on what they should be doing and accountability that they follow through on what that clarity is. Other people, it's just somebody who seemingly knows more than them and speaks with authority as to where they should be going. But telling people what to do or why to do it and to find your greatest fulfillment is big business and can make a lot of money. But today, all of us here in this room are going to receive such life-directing, mentally clarifying counsel, and here's the good news, it's not going to cost you a penny. And you can see it for yourself in the Bible, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. So if you have not done so, let me ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew 28. As you're doing that, let me just tell anybody here who does not have a copy of the Bible but would like to have one, we have these available for you for free at the Welcome Center. We love making sure that people have a copy of the Scriptures that they can read and understand. It's one of our greatest desires is to make the Bible accessible and that including even by having a copy themselves. Our text this, excuse me, this morning is Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. The title of this message this morning is The Great Commission for All Christians. This morning, I hope for you to see why it's important to see the use of the term all Christians, not just some Christians, not just the professional Christians, but all Christians. Anybody here who professes to be a follower of Christ, who self-identifies as a Christian, why this instruction this morning is so helpful in a myriad of ways. Now, to just set the scene, look with me at verses 16 and 17 of Matthew 28. Matthew continuing to write the record of the ministry and the teachings and the life of Jesus says the following in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Now in the attempt to just sort of understand what's happening here in the scene, let me help you recognize that, again, no record of any gospel writer, Matthew himself, Mark, Luke, John, is in any way claiming to represent all of the teachings, all of the events of the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, John says himself in John chapter 20 that these things are written so that you might know that you have eternal life. In other words, he writes with a particular purpose in mind. So does Matthew, which we'll see more in detail next week as we take the whole book of Matthew and look at it in one single sitting as to what Matthew is saying to his, to his readers at that time that we can understand today. What Matthew is doing here is he's giving us a reader's digest, a condensed version of a number of incidents that have taken place. May I remind you where we left off last week? We left off with this sort of compare and contrast of the earliest learners and worshipers of Jesus since his resurrection, as well as the opposing people who would reject it and create a conspiracy to deny it. We come into now verse 16 of Jesus' appearance. Now, this is not the first appearance of Jesus since his resurrection, in fact, back earlier in the previous verses, we see this, as it says in verse uh, 9, Behold, Jesus met them, referring to the women, and said greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Prior to verse 16, Jesus had appeared many different times to many different people. 
appealed to Mary, appeared to the women in general, appeared to Cleopas, appealed to Peter. He appealed, appeared to the disciples minus Thomas. Then he appeared to all of the disciples, including Thomas. He has been busy appearing and teaching and really emboldening their faith in him. And now we come to this scene here where he had instructed them, as it says, Jesus had directed them to this place. And what we see, and I want to highlight, is what happens now in verse 17. When they saw him, they first worshipped him. Notice what a common response this is to the revelation of Jesus upon his resurrection. You go back, if you will, to verse 9, you see the same response to the women. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. This is an understandable and appropriate response. Worship is the appropriate response to the realization that Jesus is not just a religious reformer. He's not just a profound teacher. He's not just a compassionate caregiver. He is indeed the Son of God. And in his resurrection, he has shown even his power over death. There is nothing, there is no one that is greater than him. Whatever he says comes to pass. And as a result of this, they worship him. They respond with adoration, with praise. But let's not miss what Matthew records next. In verse 17, it says, and some doubted. I love how honest the Bible is. I mean, honestly, if we're trying to clean up the PR image of Christianity, we would honestly come to documents like this, we come to expressions like this, like, you know what, let's, let's erase that, let's redact that from the record, let's not represent that, let's tell people that indeed there's hope and there's promise, let's give them the, the best picture. But the reality is what we see in the text is what we also know in our lives. Not everybody responded to Jesus all the time with great faith. In fact, this is a common response. As the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John records, when Thomas heard from the other disciples that Jesus had resurrected, Thomas says, I don't believe it. I'm in complete disbelief. There's no way that that can be true. Unless I put my fingers in his side, unless I touch him with my hands, I will not believe. He has forever been nicknamed in the history of Christianity as Doubting Thomas. Well, this is really an unfair characterization of Thomas as if to say only, only Thomas doubted. Friends, all of the disciples at one point or another doubted their Savior. And this is repeatedly true throughout history as we've seen. Now, some historians and commentators are wondering, well, who is doubting here? I mean, is it really the disciples doubting? Haven't they sort of erased all of that doubt? Others have said, as Paul references in 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, that Jesus appeared to more than 500 witnesses at once, that they believe that in addition to the 11 disciples here in Galilee, that there would have been these other hundreds of witnesses present, and some of them may be doubted. Here's what we know. The text doesn't teach us who it was. The text teaches us what they struggled with. They struggled with doubt. 
This is significant because Christianity is not always some faith of shiny, happy people who never struggle. Matthew is, by implication, asking this question. Who here has perfect faith? Who here by experience or by emotion has not sometimes wondered, God, are you present? And if you're present, are you actually powerful enough to do something about what at least I am seeing? Even earlier in our pre-service prayer time at 10 o'clock here this morning, which any one of you are welcome to come and join us as we meet to pray before the service. Trevor was leading us in a devotional reflection and really talking about this issue of struggling with doubt, referencing even the lesson in the book of Job when God seemed to be absent. What's so ironic in this text is that God is present and they still doubt it. Right before them, undeniably in his resurrected state, and yet they doubt it. Why do I make such a highlight for us this morning to reflect? Simply these passing words can be missed by many, and I do not want them to be missed. Friends, there's a lot of reasons why we've chosen to call this church when we started it three years ago, Grace Church. One is a synonym for the gospel, the grace of God found in Jesus Christ, his son, the hope for all sinners. Another reason is just to be reminded of the culture we have at Grace, that we rejoice with those who rejoice, we weep with those who weep, we feel victory in the faith, and we understand the struggle. We encourage people to continue to go back, not from what they experience as their starting reference point or their emotion as a starting reference point, but from what God has revealed in his Son, if you are a Christian and yet ever cower in the corner of Christianity, worrying about being exposed as a doubter, friends, doubters are present throughout all of Scripture, from Job who doubted, to the disciples who doubted, to you and I at times who doubt. And yet, what encourages us is what comes next. And this introduces us to the heart of the text this morning. In verses 18 through 20. Uh, for purposes of summary, the main point of what I want us to see in the text here is that Jesus calls all Christians to go tell others about him in order that they would truly live. In order that they would truly live. Now the question is, who is the they? Who is the antecedent in that sentence? Well, you can really say both people. Both parties, both the Christians who are doing the telling and the people who are being told that they might truly find life in Christ. And to see that, let's learn these three lessons in the verses that follow as Matthew now records what Jesus says. Look back to the text, Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
The first lesson we want to just draw, I want to draw your attention to is that we have clarity from Jesus's authority. We have clarity from Jesus's authority. He starts off this statement to them, this commissioning, if you will, of them, is this statement, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And this is significant because we kind of go back to the contemporary reality of all the supposed professionals around us who both writing and therefore by some endorsed publication endorsement, someone's chosen to print their teachings, and or by finances, people are willing to pay a great amount of money to seemingly professionals to tell us how to think and what to do and how to process our history and what to begin to plan for our future. The question is, who should have authority in your life? If you're a child, you would say, well, my parents. If you're an employee, you would say, my employer. If you're a citizen, you would say, the government over me. If you're a member, a Christian of a local church, you would say, the elders that God's appointed over me. We're always in a place of authority, but authority can be looked at suspiciously or confusingly. Who should I listen to? Who should have the greatest voice in my life? I would like to think, and I hope it to be true, that I have three sons, and they believe that the voice of their mother and their father in their life is louder than any other voice around them outside of God's word, the God-appointed means. What's so helpful here is the clarity that Jesus gives to his disciples. When he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is establishing his authority, not simply in what he is saying, but already in what he has done, by who he is as God's son, which gives him the prerogative for what's about to follow, a command. You could say it like this, he gives an an indicative, who is he, to then give the uh, prerogative of his imperative, what you should do. So who is Christ? determines why he has the prerogative to tell you what to do with your life. He is, if you will, the most authoritative life coach, to use modern-day vernacular, that you could have in your life if you claim to be a follower of God. I don't know how many of you have ever seen or heard what it's like when a man or a woman is commissioned as an officer in the United States military... But it's pretty significant and special. As they're commissioned as an officer in the United States military, they are taking on a responsibility, a responsibility before citizenship of the United States as to what role they will play in that citizenship's particular military and how they orient themselves towards the people around them, both above them and below them. If you're not familiar with what they say, let me tell you what it is that they pledge. When they become an officer in the United States military, they say the following, I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So help me God. Why don't you recognize in that 
oath that they take is that there is a significant reality that they're saying what they're saying with two sort of presuppositions. They recognize that there is some other document that they need to respect and recognize has authority, particularly the Constitution of the United States. And secondly, they have a responsibility to other people above them and below them as to the responsibility that they're going to take on. Friends, that authority ends for a commissioned officer in the military outside the country. It ends outside the President of the United States of America. But what we see here in the text is the commissioning of every man and woman, every person young and old, who pledges their allegiance not to a country but to a king and recognizes his authority over them as not elective and optional, but is required and clarifying as to the voice that he has in their life. Christians are commissioned by Christ to make disciples. Some of you have grown up in traditions where in your churches in times past, the term for pastor was the term minister. This is Minister Chris, or this is Minister Eric, or this is Minister Bancroft. And that term was used kind of in a professional way. But did you actually know that the term minister actually comes from the term servant? It's an English translation of a Greek word and written in the New Testament. It just means servant. Did you know that all Christians are indeed servants? Part of the challenge to recognizing the Great Commission is to not think of it as a professional commissioning to all of the Christians in the room who pledge to be pastors in churches, leaders in parachurch ministries, but that this is a normal commissioning for anybody who professes to be a follower. Everybody is a minister called to be a servant, which gives great dignity and purpose to all of our lives as people of God, not just some of our lives, while the rest of us sort of sit by and clap and cheer for those who seemingly are more competent or experienced and more educated and more personal than we feel ourselves to be. Now, Jesus is giving clarity here based on his authority of what he is calling all of us to, which takes a second lesson, which is we share responsibility due to Jesus' assignment. We share responsibility due to Jesus' assignment. Now, let's go back to our text. So, after establishing his authority, he goes from the great authority to now the great commission. Verse 19, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is a significant text, one in which if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I trust that you've heard in some form or fashion this text referred to, if not taught on. It is indeed coined the, the Great Commission. If the passage that Jesus has asked, what is the greatest commandment? And when he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that is titled often the Great Commandment, well, this text is often titled the Great Commission. The Great Commandment, how shall we live? In Great Commission, what shall we do while we live? But I want us to sort of slow the tape down and make sure no one's left behind 
and take another lap on the track, even for those who maybe already know this text. Because we need to recognize what's going on here. After establishing his authority, he then gives their responsibility. And the responsibility is making disciples. And in fact, the way it's sort of originally written, how it kind of comes out from the Greek to the English could be misleading, is like having gone, making disciples, baptizing, teaching. What's significant to see, first of all, is how inclusive Christianity is. It's by no means exclusive, it's quite inclusive. In fact, this would be a major head-turner for the readers. Why do I say this? Because remember, you have a Jewish man writing to Jewish readers who's repeatedly throughout the teachings of Matthew keep saying, hey, just as has been said, here it is now fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Just as has been said, here it is now fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Why is this text significant for a Jewish audience? Because he's saying, go make disciples of all nations. You're like, Okay, well, hold on a second. You, you mean just where we as Jewish people have scattered? So you're, you're only geographically concerned where there's ethnical representation? By no means. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, he has repeatedly shown from where he was at in Galilee to how he interacted with, with Gentiles and Jews that his love, his teaching was not exclusive to the people of Jews of which he himself was an ethnic Jew, but it was teaching those people how to love everybody as an understanding of how God loved everybody. The significance of what he is teaching here is the inclusivity of Christianity to include everybody in this commission to be making disciples of all the nations. What I also want you to recognize is as he's talking about making disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I commanded, uh, the presupposition, the understanding of this text is that it comes with conviction. To say that differently, it comes with actually believing that what you believe is right and believing what others believe is actually wrong. And so you're not saying that elitistly or academically, proudly. You're just saying, hey, there is right and wrong. There is accurate and inaccurate. There is truth and there is error. And I am coming to you as a representative of what is true, as an ambassador for who is right, the king, and speaking on his authority. Friends, let me just be clear about this because this needs to be very repeatedly explained to Christians. We are a people who believe the Bible and therefore have settled conviction. Why is this so significant? Because today, in sort of the inclusive age, we're not just supposed to respect ideas that differ from one another. We're supposed to respect people from one another. And by no means am I calling for disrespect. But the way in which we're called to show such respect is to acquiesce to their beliefs as if it's equally true. Though it's logically inconsistent, we're somehow supposed to just defer to their belief as a respect of personal autonomy. This is the after effect. This is the side effect, if you will of the rise and triumph of individuality. I determine what is true, and anything you say contradictory to that is an act of hatred against me. And so begins this worldview to protect personal autonomy no matter what's said contradictory to what you believe. 
Jesus is instead telling the disciples, listen, you're not going based on your authority. You're going based on my authority. And you're telling them the truth, not about yourself. You're telling them the truth about me, which has implications for everyone else in the world. Who is Jesus? Who is God? In fact, notice in the text it talks about baptizing. What does it say? It says, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What is the presupposition of this? That God, Son, Jesus, is teaching a Trinitarian understanding of who God is. This does by no means contradict what is written in the law, the prophets, and the writings, something that a Jewish ear would be very sensitive to, because Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And yet the recognition of what is revealed, though mysteriously, nevertheless true. Like it says in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image. The image of God, he made them. And as God has repeatedly revealed himself in three different persons, but one being God, the triune God. And here is Jesus referring to orthodoxy, sound teaching of the Great Commission that's built upon biblical conviction, something as basic and fundamental as the belief in the Trinity. Let me be even more provocative. If you do not believe in the Trinity, you are not believing in Christianity. Now, why do I say this? Because it has increasingly grown popular in some corners of supposed Christianity, and I use that term loosely, that God is not actually three persons. He is just simply one person appearing in three different modes. This is what's known as modalism. Very popular, for example, in oneness Pentecostalism and in other areas of aberrant theology. To believe that is to not believe what the God of the Scripture so repeatedly reveals about himself and teaches us to show to others. God is a God, one God revealed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and no greater way can this be seen with clarity than at Jesus' baptism. There's Jesus present, it's God's Son. There's the Spirit descending on him as the Spirit of God. And there's God the Father speaking, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. The recognition here and the great commission is that we are a people of conviction. What is ultimately that conviction based upon? God's son was born in the likeness of men, you and me. Born of a virgin in his life fulfilled every law that God had ever written and recorded, both in the revelation of his word and the conscience that's written on our hearts, unlike anybody in this room or in this world. And therefore, being God, born in the likeness of men, he is the only qualified, suitable substitute that could even be qualified to make atonement to pay the ransom, to pay off the debt that you and I otherwise deserve to pay and otherwise will have to spend and pay for all of eternity in consequence of our rebellion against a holy God whose holiness is greater than our imaginations can even fathom. And after fulfilling all of God's law, he then lays down his life as a substitute. 
And then after being crucified and buried in fulfillment of God's word that said that this is exactly what would happen, as all of the system of the sacrifice in the Old Testament was pointing to, to say this is just simply a foreshadowing of the clear picture of what God would provide in his son himself. Then he resurrected from the grave three days later, appearing to more than 500 witnesses as you see me and I see you, so they saw Christ. This final instructions to them, final encouragement to them, ascending then to be at the right hand of the fathers, Hebrews says, promising to return to judge the world according to his righteousness. Friends, the significance here is that the good news is that man can have peace with God. The bad news is you can't have peace with God on your own terms. It's only on his terms. And that's exactly what he's saying here in the text. You look back to what he's saying here in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Disciples of what? Disciples is like a New Testament term for student, follower. Everybody follows somebody. A lot of people just follow themselves. Right? This kind of corrupt, though perhaps well-intended counsel a lot of us give each other. Just follow your heart. That's a horrible thing to tell somebody. But it seems so right because it seems so real. How could it therefore be wrong? Everybody is a disciple of somebody. The question is, who are they following as they follow that person? Will it lead them unto death or unto life? Only Christ promises life. But notice that that faith corresponds to following not just making disciples who are pledging to be followers of Christ. The following is showing itself then in the how they follow in obedience. What is the first act of obedience that every disciple of Christ is shown here in the scripture? Baptism. That's exactly right. Baptism. Friends, we have done a disservice to many people today in the world who have somehow disconnected to think that baptism is an elective option for Christians who are only willing to go public if they're, oh, I don't know, maybe publicly personified in that sort of way, or maybe allowed to do so if it's in some like romantic place like the Sea of Jordan River or the Dead Sea or something. No, the reality is that baptism is the New Testament version of altar call. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? You're talking about altar call. Uh, Charles Finney, a preacher popular in the 1800s, came along and he introduced what was called the anxious bench. It was an actually wooden bench tied to his horseback. And as he came along after the Great Awakening and he preached the Bible, he called people to respond. And he wanted to kind of, he would even acknowledge or manipulate their emotions. And he would set before them this wood bench and he would call them forward to come. And it's only in so much as they came to that bench where they then confirmed as being followers of Christ. The problem was that way of doing evangelism became very popular in our country. And so people over time, over a century, began to say, listen, I know I'm a Christian because I have done something publicly, walked an aisle, raised a hand, filled out a card, all of which I'm saying, I don't know, might be good, might be bad, you might be confused as to what being a Christian is. The Bible says being a Christian means to respond in faith by being obedient in baptism. Now, what's interesting about the Great Commission is that for many Christians, in their thinking, it stops right there. 
I'll grant you, faith is good and required, Eric, I see that. Obedience is important, and I can think of a time where I was baptized after I put my faith in Christ. For those of you who were baptized before your faith in Christ, that's not baptism, that's called a free Christian bath. You're welcome, you're welcome. Sometimes that can be confusing for people. It's one of the things we talk about as pastors when we're talking to people becoming members of the church. Let's hear your story. But you notice the rest of the Great Commission? It's not just make disciples, not just baptize them. Look at what it says next in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is why we say we want Grace Church to be a great commission church. Look over here in this sign, this mission. We say, make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Christ. If I may, signs that perhaps you've been seeing for countless weeks or months, and maybe if you've been here for a few years, let me just point out why we use this terminology, because it's coming right here. We're just jokingly say it, Grace Church, we're just boringly Bible. We just like plagiarize the Bible all day long. Here it is, there it is. What are we saying here? We're saying that the idea that Jesus is teaching is that Christians not only identify with him in their faith, they identify with him in their life, and that they desire to learn what he's commanded, that they might not just grow in knowledge of it, but they might in humility over time, good seasons and bad seasons, grow in obedience to it. Friends, the the question I'm asking you is not do you profess to be a follower of Christ? Praise God if you do. Praise God. I, I want everybody here to profess to be a follower of Christ. The question is, would your practice match that profession? Do you come eager to learn so that you might respond in obedience? Are you coming with like a a spiritual bib? I remember when I was a kid going with my family to some of these seafood restaurants. We lived in Columbia, South Carolina. Every now and then we'd save up money. We'd go to the coast in Charleston or some type of beach place like that. And I would sit down as a kid and order a bucket of oysters. Like for real? For real. Now, I have to confess, that was half out of curiosity what it was like to just grab a sharp instrument and pry open a shell, and half out of curiosity, eat something that was so seemingly disgusting in texture, but I had an acquired taste for. But anytime I sat down before I did that, I would have a bib on. My mom would have a bib, or sometimes a place of a bib, not because I was five, but because I was going to make a mess. I was going to wear my dinner if I didn't have that bib on but I had an appetite to eat that much in front of me. When you gather with Christians, what's your appetite like? How much of a mess are you going to make? How much will you wear your Christianity because it's splashing on you? How much will today's text and today's songs and today's scripture reading and today's prayers have an effect on you? How much will you be longing, striving, leading, loving, praying, and longing to see Christ be fully formed in you, as Paul said for the Galatians? Friends, part of our making disciples is just by praying that God would make us a faithful disciple. That people don't just hear the gospel from us, They also see the effect of it in us, not just individually, but collectively as a people. How we interact with each other and love one another. 
how we serve those who are not like us. As we think about this, think about how we're being tested with our convictions and how we're to have these interactions. Friends, may I encourage you when you have conversations with people that you have biblically solid conversations. Conviction based on confidence that you speak to others with the authority of Jesus given to you. You don't speak proudly or or with great audacity. You speak confidently and compassionately of what the Bible says, of who Christ is and what he's calling us to do. Conversions require conversations. And the question is whether or not you or I are having conversations with others. Those who are not Christians and those who are professing to be Christians. How are we loving each other? How are we serving each other and loving each other well? Which takes us to our third lesson here. We have clarity from Jesus' authority. We have responsibility due to Jesus' assignment. And then thirdly, we are encouraged by Jesus' assurance. Look at the rest of verse 20. Jesus says something so encouraging. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Oh, friends. I feel like in some ways we kind of end where we began. Not that it was the initial point of introduction, but perhaps a memorable one. In verse 18, as we refer to those words, some doubted. Friends, I just wanted to tell you the truth. If you're wrestling with whether or not to become a Christian, should you surrender your life to Christ? And I pray you would really do that. But I want to be very clear as I call you to trust in Christ, as you surrender your life to Him. It's not a promise that upon doing so, life just seemingly has an uptick to it. You just kind of simply move from like mediocrity to exceptionality. You kind of move from like, you know, general kindness to like super overwhelming joyfulness. No, in fact, quite honestly, at times you'll find yourself a bit disoriented because you'll find yourself, wait a minute, if God loves me, which I know he does in the cross, why am I experiencing what I'm experiencing? Why am I feeling what I'm feeling? Why do I feel so alone in a city that seemingly is so against what I believe? I feel intimidated into silence. Friends, the promise of Christianity is not that your circumstances will always go well. The promise of Christianity is that who you are in Christ will never change. That in the words of Scripture, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul in Romans 8, that God will, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Promise that Jesus makes here is a promise to continue to remind ourselves and remind others. I am with you always to the end of the age. He will always be with them. And this is encouraging because some of us in this context and our country, this is more of a personal point of comfort. You might feel isolated and alone. You might feel circumstantially different and unlike anybody else around you, which I can just tell you truthfully, as a pastor to so many people, you'd be surprised how many people are just like you. 
by previous experience or by present experience. But outside of our context in our country, where we have great freedoms to practice our religious exercise, particularly for us as Christians, in which we enjoy and continue to pray for that God would be kind to give to us, a lot of our brothers and sisters don't just go through present challenges in other countries, they go through personal persecution in other countries and contexts. They're not just wondering if God is with them when they lost their job. They're wondering if God is with them when they have lost their spouse to death because of persecution. When they've watched their children be taken from them because of persecution. And Jesus is saying, I am with you. So this gives you a confidence that can lead to you being comforted by the presence of God, specifically the resurrected Savior. Think about who we're sharing this with, the disciples. Think about how often the disciples presumably would have to remind themselves of this. After his ascension, when they would be in obedience to this commission, the first to go out. And they would do so under great duress. And for most of them, except the the apostle John, all of them eventual death. And how often they have to remind themselves, you are not alone. That Christ is saying, I am with you. If I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all for China. These words were spoken by Hudson Taylor in the 1800s. Hudson Taylor was a British Christian missionary to China and the founder of the China Inland Mission. He spent 51 years of his life in China. The society that he began was responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries to the country. And they began 125 schools. And directly, in a result, 18,000 Christian conversions that they could at least record and track, as well as countless others. And the establishment of more than 300 churches. Hudson Taylor was known for his sensitivity to Chinese culture and his zeal for evangelism. He was one of the first missionaries who would be known for wearing the clothing of the people which he lived with. Prior to then, it had not been done. It has been said by some, no other missionary in the 19th century since the Apostle Paul had a wider vision than has carried out a more systematized plan of evangelizing a broad geographical area than Hudson Taylor. When I read that to you, you might go, that's impressive, but that's not me. But I want you to hear from Hudson himself. As a guest teacher this morning at Grace Church in Miami in 2022, from another disciple of Christ, encouraging others to be a disciple of Christ, what would he say God is calling us to? To greatness in other countries? No, this is what he said. God isn't looking for people of great faith, but for individuals ready to follow him. Do you realize that the earliest disciples, all 11 of them, were seemingly, for the most part, uneducated? Unimpressive? But by their faithfulness to the teachings of Christ, 2,000 years later, we sit here in Miami in the aftermath of what they have done in being faithful. 
The question is, if the Lord so determines to not return back before the end of our life, who will sit in this room and in other churches around this city and around this country because you, in your lifetime, were faithful to him? God wants to tell the story of an amazing Savior, not an amazing person like yourself, but to be a committed follower that's faithful, knowing he's always present with you. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.